Well, I trust this morning that it is well with your soul, and I love a lot of things about that hymn, one of which is the reminder that our soul doing well is not dependent upon our circumstances, because so often our circumstances are painful and difficult. We can't see through them. And in the midst of that, because of what Christ has done, by faith in Christ, by His work in our lives, the hope that we have in Him, our soul can do well despite that. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, and we will begin our Scripture reading this morning at verse 1. Listen now to the Word of the living God. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we pause before you this morning 
And we rejoice that we get to come into your presence in prayer because of Christ our Savior. We rejoice also that you have given your word in our hands that we can open up and we can read in our own language freely, anytime we want, the very words of the living God. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful that it comes directly from you and that it has such fruitfulness in our lives. We are grateful for your Holy Spirit who uses your word, applying it to the hearts of your people. And we pray that your spirit would do that even in these next few minutes. As we have your word open, may our hearts be open before you. May you be at work in us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are moving on through the book of Genesis. We are nearing the end. And uh, we have come to uh, the end of Jacob's life. And we want to look today at the words that he says, the blessings that he passes on to his offspring. Here Jacob has these 12 sons, and as was the custom of the day, and particularly someone of Jacob's stature, uh, at the end of his life he will pass on a blessing specific to his children, particularly his sons, and each uh, in his turn will receive a blessing or um, a word specifically having to do with his own situation, and not just commenting on things in the past. This would be common for us, perhaps, if, if on our deathbed we had opportunity to talk with our children. We might reflect upon the past. We might reflect upon uh, things that they had done or we had done with them. And, and that, of course, is, is, is fitting, and it's a good thing to do. But there's, a, there's something in this culture, something in this situation here, where not only is Jacob reflecting on the past with his children, but he's looking towards the future. And he's actually prophesying in certain ways about what their future will be like. And of course, as we know, as we've gotten to know Jacob and his family, that his sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so after the time that they will spend in Egypt, which is, uh, they're already in Egypt, but that will continue for some 400 years years, at the end of which they will come out of Egypt, they will eventually go into the promised land, and they will be the 12 tribes of Israel. And when that time comes, they will begin to see more specifically how the words of Jacob influence them, affect their lives. And so we want to look today at the words that Jacob has for his son, but there are a number of sons, by the way, who just really aren't all that relevant. (laughs) And so we're not going to spend time looking at them. Uh, They receive maybe a verse Uh, maybe a comment here or there. We're not going to focus on all 12 of the sons. We want to look at three different categories of the sons, and you see them listed there in uh, your outline that you have in your bulletin. And the first has to do with statements made made to the sons who will receive consequences of sin. Consequences of sin. And in this category, we have three sons who specifically have reference to their former life, the things that they've done, and how that will have impact upon their posterity who will go into the land. So some of the sons receive consequences of sins. And so 
The heading that I have in my Bible is Jacob blesses his sons, but it's not exactly blessing, is it? Particularly when we look at Reuben. We already read it here, but if we remember who Reuben is, Reuben is his firstborn, which is what Jacob says there in verse 3. Reuben is the firstborn son of Leah. Leah is, remember, the unfavored wife of uh, Jacob, that Jacob eventually would have four wives. He made a deal with his father-in-law to, to receive a particular uh, one of the two sisters, Rachel. He was looking forward to having as his wife, and so he worked seven years for his father-in-law, and in exchange he would receive Rachel, but at the last moment Laban pulled the switcheroo, and actually it turns out that he was married to Leah, the woman he didn't, uh, hadn't wanted to marry, and so um, he uh, was sad about that, and you can see that ongoing frustration, that ongoing uh, position that Leah has all throughout her life and her marriage to Jacob, that she is the unfavored one. She's always second fiddle. She's always uh, the one that is unloved. And Reuben is her firstborn son. God, looking at that situation, as messed up as that situation was, they're eventually being uh, the two explicit wives and then two uh, concubines that come with that, basically four wives. What a messed up situation. What a, what a bizarre, goofy situation. But looking at that and seeing Leah's unfavored status that, that, that Jacob just did not love her, God blessed her and opened her womb, and she would end up having six of his 12 sons. And so Reuben, the firstborn, starts off in this blessing. He must have been thinking, this is going to be great. Reuben, you are my firstborn, verse 3, my might. Right? Jacob's patting him on the back. He's, he's excited about him, it sounds like. And, and the first fruits of my strength, my first son, my, my firstborn, the one that I've known the longest, the one I've invested the most in, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. That oldest son, the position that he had was, was a, a privileged one. And yet, verse 4, Jacob reflects on the fact that he is unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Yes, you are the firstborn, and by rights, you ought to be in the position to be the leader of the family, the leader of that entire generation, the patriarch who would lead all of his brothers, lead the entirety of the family, but you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and defiled it. He went up to my couch. And you remember that awful story back in chapter 35, that in a moment of Jacob's weakness, when Jacob himself was was in, in, in mourning and, and, and at a time of loss, and he was, he was not strong, he was weak. And, and at that moment, Reuben decided, this must be the time for me to step in, for me to become the leader of the family. And so he, the way he decided to leverage power and establish his claim was by going into his father's concubine so that he had relations with her. He was demonstrating in a, in a very bizarre way to us that he was taking his dad's place. He was going to be the new leader. Of course, Jacob didn't stand for that. He didn't say much about it at the time, but he's sure saying a lot about it right now. He says that as a result of that, you will not have preeminence. You are as unstable as water. And if we look at the history, the subsequent history from this time on, no prophet, no judge, and no king ever comes from Reuben. 
because of his actions, because of what he did back in chapter 35, Reuben, the firstborn, the strong one, the, 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 the evidence of Jacob's might, the, the, the preeminent one, he actually forfeits that preeminence and he suffers the consequences of his sin. What a, what a sad moment it must have been for Reuben at this point to hear those words from his father. But he wasn't the only one who will receive consequences for his sin. We move on and we look at verses 5 through 7 and we see that also Simeon and Levi... Now, this is Jacob's second child and third child, second son and third son. These are, these are Leah's second and third sons. They're next in line, basically. He's, he's kind of working from the top down, though he will break that pattern later on. But he says of them, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. Since Reuben, the firstborn, has removed himself from that place of preeminence by his own actions, naturally you would look to the second and third sons. And here we have these two, Simeon and Levi, and, and he says, no, they are, they are men of violence. They are those who actually are untrustworthy. Let not my soul come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. Because you remember their rage, you remember when their sister Dinah, after having first come back into the land and they were near the town of Shechem, and their sister Dinah was kidnapped, she was abused, she was being held hostage in that place by the prince of the town. Now, according to the law of God, kidnappers ought to be put to death. And that is not what Simeon and Levi did. They did not go and find the kidnapper and put him to death. Instead, they attacked the town by trickery. They attacked the town and they killed every man in the town, putting them all to death and putting Jacob and his clan at risk. And Jacob had not forgotten that one either. And so he says here at the end, yes, I've passed over Reuben, the firstborn. What about number two and number three, Simeon, Levi? No, I'm passing over them as well. They don't receive the blessing. Verse seven, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. This is a prophecy being made about these two tribes, about Simeon and Levi. And what ends up happening is the, the tribe of Simeon, if you have a map in your Bible, and every good Bible has a map in it, if you look at back at the 12 uh, tribes of Israel and you look at it, you see that Judah is the, the primary landholder in the southern kingdom. When 400 years later or 500 years later, when they go into the land and they're apportioned their different properties, they have their own place that they live. Judah has the big place in the south, the place of prominence. And you'll see in a, in a in an, an odd fashion, Simeon placed right in the middle of that. And it's kind of faint. And that's because eventually Simeon just gets absorbed into Judah. And they basically disappear. They don't have their own inheritance. They receive an inheritance in, within Judah itself, but then Judah swallows them up. So Simeon receives no inheritance. They're scattered. They're absorbed. They don't have any independence. What about Levi? Does Levi inherit any land? No, he doesn't. Levi, the tribe of Levi, 
will go through a process that is very different from Simeon's, but the end result is they themselves don't have a land either. If you look at that same map of the tribes of Israel in the back of your Bible, you will not see a place of Levi. And that's because they had uh, some cities here or there, but their inheritance was God Himself. They did not have a land. They were those who ministered in the temple and, and, uh, and those sorts of things. And so neither one of these will receive a land possession. And so they are passed over as well. So some of the sons receive consequences for sin. But there's another group we want to look at, and that is the one son who receives rewards for faithfulness. And so we're going to go to the end of our uh, passage here today, and we're going to look down at verse 22, and we're going to look at Joseph. Joseph is a unique character amongst the sons of Israel, and he is an obedient one. Let's uh, he, he's the reason, Joseph is the reason that Jacob and his family get to continue to have existence, <laughs> that they didn't starve to death. It was because by the brothers selling Joseph into slavery and him entering into uh, the, the, the land of Egypt as a slave, and then even worse than that, he gets thrown in prison. But God was using that to elevate him to the place where through his wisdom, through his faithfulness, through God using him, he would actually feed a good portion of the known world at that time, and most particularly, most importantly, Jacob and his family. So Joseph is a unique character, and these words that Jacob says to Joseph here, starting in verse 22, are important for us. Joseph, having named other brothers and saying, saying some things about them, they're there are a bunch in the middle there who really aren't uh, all that significant comparatively. In verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Now, this is poetic language, and some of this is difficult to translate, but the idea there is that Joseph has, has been very productive. He's been very fruitful. He's, he's like a tree that's it's planted by a spring. He's got a constant source of water, and he just keeps growing and expanding and blessing. And his, 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 his bough reaches over, his branches reach over a wall. It just keeps spreading out. It's like, it's like a giant shade tree is Joseph. Verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty, beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers." Lots of poetic language in there. What's the, what's the thrust of it? What's the idea of it? Is that through great hardship, though his brothers turned on him and sold him into slavery, though they, they contemplated killing him, and then they relented and just sold him to the slavers that were passing by. And all the hardship that he went through, through, through all of that, nevertheless, he remained faithful. And God blessed Joseph. God blessed Joseph and through him blessed all of the land of Egypt and the surrounding places who had a place during a, a severe famine where they could come and buy food because of God's use of Joseph. 
and provision was made for Jacob as well. Joseph, in his faithfulness, was a blessing unlike any other. He stood out above his brothers. He was the one who provided leadership. He was the one who provided sustenance. He was the one who took care of his family. And we saw last week that he, though he's the 11th son, by the way, the 11th son, but the first son of the favored wife, but he's far down the list. He shouldn't receive the, the place of the, infer, the firstborn, the inheritance of the firstborn, and yet he does. That Jacob, by, by adopting Joseph's two sons, essentially gives Joseph the position of preeminence that was taken away from Reuben. Joseph is treated as the firstborn because he has been so faithful. He has been such a blessing to the whole world and particularly to Jacob himself. So Jacob pronounces a blessing on Joseph that's unparalleled. Now if you think, if you flash forward five, six hundred years, eight hundred years, a thousand years from this time, there will be two nations in the land, if you remember, after the nation of uh, Israel comes up out of the land of Egypt and goes through, goes through Sinai and finally enters into the land and they, they conquer and they take different portions and they're assigned different lands. And they exist that way for a few centuries and then there's a crisis that happens and when King Solomon dies, King Solomon who had been king over the whole land north and south all unified under him as had David his father. But when Solomon dies, remember the land was divided up. And it became two kingdoms, the divided kingdom period or the divided monarchy. Joseph, his tribes are the leaders of the northern kingdom. That Joseph becomes an entire nation to himself. There are other tribes mixed in, but Joseph is the leader. He's the one that gives the strength, particularly in Ephraim, his son. And so here Joseph is this unique character. And in this statement here where Jacob is talking to his sons. He'll give a verse to some sons. He'll give two verses to some sons, maybe three. He gives three to Simeon and Levi, but Joseph himself gets five verses. He's that important. Blessings that he receives, rewards for faithfulness. But there's a third category. One son in particular, receives redemption and restoration. We have those sons in the beginning who received consequences for their sin. They, they didn't get justice per se, but they got the consequences for their sin and their offspring after them. Remember, these statements aren't just made about these men. They're, they're made with regard to those who will be in the future, those who will come after them as their offspring, the tribes that come from them. So we have some sons who receive consequences of sin. We have another son who receives rewards of faithfulness, and there's no one quite like Joseph. But there is a third category. One son in particular receives redemption and restoration. He doesn't get justice. He becomes redeemed and restored, and that, of course, is Judah himself. Judah, another son, going back to verse 8, of chapter 49, another son who receives five verses. And if you think with me for a moment, just as Joseph received five verses from his dad, his dad focused on him, and he will become 
Joseph will become the, the leader or his tribes will of the whole northern kingdom. What is the southern kingdom called when the northern kingdom breaks off? The southern kingdom is called Judah. And Judah is the leader of the southern kingdom, and he's a, a very significant character. So in these two, Judah and Joseph, you have both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom represented. So you can see that the words of Jacob carry on and have their effect in the lives of the tribes of his sons. But look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Judah is the fourth-born son of Leah the unfavored wife. Number one, Reuben has been taken out of the picture. Numbers two and three, Simeon and Levi have been taken out of the picture. But here is Judah. What do we remember about Judah? What do we remember about his life? We, we remember a lot of things that are not all that great about him, his, his behavior. But we see a, a course of redemption in his life. It's very different in character from the way he started out. And so we see Judah, verse 8, Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Now, again, that's poetic imagery. But what does it mean? What's the significance? Judah is a force to be reckoned with. He is a powerful man. He is a dangerous man to his enemies. Who dares rouse him? His brothers shall bow down to him. They shall praise him. Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. What's the scepter? It's the sign of leadership. It's the, it's the sign of the king. It's, it's what he holds that demonstrates he's the one in charge. Nor the ruler's staff depart from between his feet. He's going to be seated on a throne. He's going to be the one in charge. He's going to be the king. That's who Judah will become to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's a phrase in there in the middle that's difficult to translate. It's more difficult to understand. The ESV has it, until tribute comes to him. I think the King James says, until Shiloh comes. I think the New American Standard also says, until Shiloh comes. Now, that's taking the wimpy way out because that's just not translating the word Shiloh and just bringing it straight into English as if we're supposed to know what that means. Um, it's difficult to to translate, but I think what's, what's going on here is that there will come one to whom all of this belongs and it will all make sense. The one who is to inherit this, when he comes on the scene, then it will all be consummated and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he was washed with garments. He, he has washed his garments in wine. Why would you wash your garments in wine? Well, it would stain them for one thing, but usually you just use regular old water. But I think the imagery here is that he's so rich. The provision, he, he, he's so wealthy that 
He can use wine. He doesn't have to save that for the dinner table or for special occasions or whatever. He go ahead and wash the linens with it. He's so abundantly provided for. His vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What a glorious one. He's the one who stands out above them all, though Joseph himself was the faithful brother, that all through Joseph's life we see him being faithful. When we look at Judah, we see a problem child to one degree or another. That he was, he was involved very closely in selling Joseph into slavery, regardless of what dad thought. And then we have that, that scene in chapter 38 where there's, there's the problem of, of him with his daughter-in-law and, and, and all, all of the craziness that goes with that. He's got problems. He's, he's thinking about himself. He doesn't really care about other people. He doesn't really care about his father. He doesn't seem to care about the Lord. And yet, if you remember later in the story when, when there was a threat to Benjamin, the youngest son, his youngest brother, Jacob's baby boy, the only other child of the favored wife. When there was a threat to Benjamin, Judah said, I will stand in his place. If anything happens to him, hold me accountable for it. He becomes the offering. He gives himself as a substitute for Benjamin. You see that Judah has grown in character. And then all through this time when, when the family is coming down from Canaan, where they normally live, remember because of the famines and all of that, they're, they're searching for food and they're trying to find a place to go. And so they, they hear that there's food down in Egypt. And through that process, who is it consistently providing leadership through that process? Judah. Judah is coming into his own. He's a changed man. He's willing to offer himself in the place of his younger brother. He's willing to give leadership. He's the one who is leading the way. Judah has been redeemed. Judah has been restored. God has been working through all of these circumstances in the heart of Judah so that though he started out in a dark place, he ends up being the leader of the family. He ends up being the one leading all of his brothers and everyone else down into Egypt to be blessed by Joseph. And here we have in these final words that are made, uh, declared about Judah and about those who will come from him, God is saying through Jacob, his father, that there is going to be blessing. There's going to be abundant provision. There's going to be opulence. There's going to be wealth and an and, 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 and amazing future for Judah. God is redeeming him. God is restoring him. And he's saying that his offspring, those who come after him, will be restored, will have blessings will have abundant provision and most importantly in all of this most importantly in all of this verse 10 the scepter shall not depart from judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples that from him from Judah, in the line of Judah, out of the tribe of Judah that will come as Judah's descendants will come the one who will sit on the throne forever. Now we know as we look at the history of Judah that it was, it was a, 
of the line of Judah every time who sat on the throne. And we see that made more specific in David with the promise that's made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that it will be his offspring who sit on the throne. And sure enough, in the southern kingdom, generation after generation after generation, you've got the offspring of David. A son of David sits on the throne. And we know that it's ultimately through the tribe of Judah that the Messiah himself will come, the one who is the fulfillment of the promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, who is the fulfillment of the promise through Jacob to to Judah here in Genesis chapter 49. That Jesus himself will be the ultimate blessing of these words, the ultimate consummation of these words given by Jacob to Judah. So that's a very quick look at these words, these prophecies, the blessings, the the, the, the inheritance, the testimony given, the testament given by Jacob to his sons. What are some implications? Well, there are, there are a number of implications. I have three that I want to focus on briefly. As we think about the decisions that these brothers made in their lives, you reflect on the fact that Jacob, who is speaking to his sons, and he's talking about the, their future generations, what does he refer to? the actions of the sons themselves. When Reuben went into his father's concubine, when Simeon and Levi waged war on a town unjustly, that you have Jacob recognizing decisions made in the life of those boys that had impact on the rest of their lives, the rest of their descendants' lives. The first implication is today's decisions affect tomorrow. Today's decisions affect tomorrow. Proverbs 22 and verse 8, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. So here, this person sows injustice, and they reap calamity. Today's decisions affect tomorrow. Or Proverbs 6, 27 and 28, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be scorched? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Today's decisions affect tomorrow. That's the first implication. Second implication, we can pass on to our children either blessings or curses we can pass on to our children either blessings or curses. Remember Eli who raised Samuel? Well, Eli had his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were the ones who served in the tabernacle. But Eli never passed on to his sons a knowledge of the Lord. Never passed on to his sons a fear of God. Apparently, never passed on to his sons the importance and the necessity of even controlling themselves. When you look at their lives and you look at the decisions they made and, and, and what came of Eli's sons, what was the end after all of the evil that they committed? Well, they died in battle at the word of the Lord because of their sins. Part of that lay at Eli's feet. Or what about Lois and Eunice in the New Testament? They passed on to their son and grandson a knowledge of the Scriptures. 
teaching him the Scriptures. And years later, that boy grew up into a young man who became the spiritual son and the trusted companion, the co-laborer of the Apostle Paul himself. The young man, of course, was Timothy. You could pass on to your children either blessings or curses. That's one of the implications of this section here. And the third implication, the consequences of our actions can be vastly more far-reaching than we could imagine. When Reuben was going into his father's concubine, he had no idea what would come of it. When Simeon and Levi went and slaughtered those men, some of whom were not guilty of the crime for which they were being killed, they had no idea what would be the consequences. The consequences of our actions can be vastly more far-reaching than we could imagine. Remember Esau. Esau is a good example for us to remember, though he's a terrible example. Back in Genesis chapter 25, he came in from the field, remember? He was exhausted and he was hungry and he was sure that he was starving to death. He, he was so hungry that he agreed to sell his birthright, the most important possession that he had. He, he agreed to sell his birthright to his younger brother for a bowl of stew. And that birthright was gone forever. It was never to be his again. Or remember Moses. who grew angry one day, and he struck a rock that the Lord had told him to speak to. Not a big difference. By the way, he had, he had struck a rock before, and, and exactly what he wanted to happen had happened, but this time the Lord said, speak to the rock. Moses was angry, and he struck the rock. Not a big deal. Just a small thing, but what was the result? Moses didn't get to enter the promised land because of that consequences of that decision. Our actions have consequences that reach farther than we might think. And so we have some points of application. I've got four of them. First of all, be careful as you consider today's decisions, knowing that they can have enormous impact on tomorrow's realities. The decisions we make today the things we value, the things we pursue, the things we put in a place of priority today can have enormous impact on tomorrow's realities. Think of entering into marriage foolishly. Will that impact you? It will impact you. Think about toying with pornography or impurity or sexual immorality. Will that have impact in your life? Will that affect the future? Will that have farther-ranging consequences than you might be able to imagine? Oh, yes. What about simply posting unguarded or unwise things on social media? I'm so glad social media didn't exist when I was in school. The dumb things I did are now memories <laughs> in the past. <laughs> the things we post on social media are there forever for all to see consequences that last and affect tomorrow. What about taking on financial obligations you may not be able to meet? 
might be consequences of that. Consequences might last a long time. And I could go on and on and on, but here's the point. Be careful as you consider today's decisions. Second point of application. Consider what heritage you are passing on to your children. Consider the heritage that you are passing on to your children. What are you teaching them to value? Not just what you tell them to value, but what do you demonstrate to them is valuable by your actions, by your own actual values, not just your words. If you're, if you're always at work, never with your family, well, you're, you're teaching that, that work is important and that's valuable. But you might be teaching that work is more important than your family. So you need to be careful. If you're always glued to the TV, what does that communicate to your children? TV is pretty high in priority. What if you're always worked up about politics? You're angry, you're afraid about what Carson City is going to do or about what D.C. is going to do or lousy Las Vegas is going to do or whatever. What are we teaching our kids? What are we passing on to our children? What are we teaching them to worry about? What are we teaching them to fear? What's the message to our children? Or what if you're up early reading your Bible and praying for your children and praying for your family? What do they learn from that? If when they, they come in in the morning, they come stumbling in because they're bleary-eyed and, and, and you're praying for them and reading the Bible, and what does that teach them? We pass on a heritage to our children. We need to consider it. If we take time each day to open the Bible and discuss it as a family and pray together and sing God's praises, what kind of heritage would that leave for our children? Consider the heritage that you are truly passing on to your children by the life that you lead and the things that you value the most. The example of Judah, this is the third, moving on to the third uh, point of application here, the example of Judah and even the example of Levi, both of those men were sinful men. And when we look at the way God restored Judah, the blessings that God passed on to the line of Judah, up to and including ultimately the Messiah coming from his line, what, a, what blessings were passed on to Judah, and by the way, into the future, uh, from this point, after uh, the two kingdoms have been divided, uh, the northern kingdom, which is Joseph and Ephraim and Israel, it has several names, Samaria, it, it has several of those names. After a couple of hundred years of existing that way, the northern kingdom goes away, and what remains? Only Judah for a couple hundred more years. And so the blessing to Judah is very strong, but Judah, Judah received mercy that God would restore him. Judah had a right to expect to receive what Reuben had received. Levi and Simeon were addressed in the same sentences. They did the same sin, going after and killing those innocent men in Shechem. It was those two who partnered together to do that. And the same statement is made about each of them. They will be scattered amongst my people. They will not have their own inheritance, not an inheritance of land. What happens to Simeon? He's consumed, he's absorbed. 
He essentially stops existing. What happens to Levi? Remember, they committed the same sin. They did the same thing. What happens to Levi? Well, they don't receive a land inheritance. They receive the Lord as their inheritance. So it actually was a curse to the one brother who did the exact same sin as the second brother. What, is, what, what results in a cursing, in judgment for the first brother, results in huge blessing for the second brother. God's mercy had been powerfully at work there. And I think there's a lesson here I want us to think about just for a moment. Don't presume upon God's grace. When we look at the lives of these men, we, we see that some of them receive something like justice. Reuben and Simeon and Levi deserved to receive harsh words from their father. But the words to Levi end up being blessings. Did he deserve that? No. He committed the same sin. Judah was sinful himself, and yet God gives mercy to him. But, but you and I stand here, and we look at uh, the Lord's table that's before us, and we think of the sacrifice of Christ for us, that Jesus gave himself in body and blood to redeem a people, to make us his own, to show grace towards us. So we've received grace. Aren't we going to receive grace forever? I've, I've been, by faith in Christ, the punishment for my sin has been placed upon Christ so that I don't bear God's wrath ever again. Surely I'll never see the consequences of my sin, right? I can continue doing what I want. Isn't that the, 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 the way the world thinks about this situation? If you receive mercy, won't you just live like the devil? Sometimes we think about that. We look at a sin, we entertain a sin, and we think, well, I have God's mercy. I've received God's mercy, and He's delivered me from perhaps worse things in the past. As I look at this thing, I can think, well, surely God will spare me from the consequences of this sin too. He's done so in the past. That's presuming upon God's grace. Yes, if I am in Christ, I am forgiven of my sins, but I may very well deal with the consequences. If I foolishly enter into some business deal or something that puts me horribly in debt and, and, and it was foolish and, 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 and you guys all told me not to do it and all this kind of stuff, but I, I just go in because I think, oh, God will spare me from the consequences. I may end up suffering the consequences of that foolish decision. God might spare me, but He might not, and He doesn't have to. Don't presume upon God's grace. Actions have consequences. Entering into sin with the thought that God's grace will spare you its consequences is the definition of presumption. If we're entertaining sexual immorality or something like that, and we think, oh, I'm in Christ, I'm forgiven. If you're in Christ, you are forgiven, and you may have consequences that last the rest of your life. Don't presume upon God's grace. But fourthly, thank God for His grace that we have in Christ. We think about Judah we think about the blessings that were given to him and blessings of abundant provision, 
blessings of wealth, blessings of God's favor, blessings of Him ruling over His people. Those don't just point to the nation or to the tribe of Judah. They don't just point to David, that king. They point ultimately to Christ, that He is the locus. He's where all of that grace is found. That God would ultimately send His Son, born as one of us, but who would live obediently, perfectly obediently, not, even, not just mostly obediently or apparently obediently like, like Joseph, but ultimately and perfectly obediently. And then He would go to the place of punishment for sin so that the wrath of God due for my sin was placed on Him instead. And I have grace in Christ. My sin has been paid for. It's been washed away. And so our first, fourth point of application here is to thank God for His grace toward us that is found in Christ. So if I could have the men who are going to serve the Lord's table uh, come on up at this time. What we are about to do is partake of the bread and the cup something that was instituted by Jesus Himself in the New Testament that He said was to point to Him and what He had done. And because of that, this is something that is for Christians to partake of. If you're not a Christian, if you, if you don't know the Lord and, and, and you're not certain about the gospel and where you stand with Him, let the elements pass. Don't, don't partake of those, but come talk to me. And let's, let's talk about what it means to be in Christ and to be forgiven by Him. So just let these elements pass and think about the words that we're saying. Christian, as we look at these elements, this is a time for us to give God glory for the grace that is ours in Christ. That as we consider the, the bread which is being passed, which represents the body of Christ, as we, as, as we consider that, we think about our need for redemption. That we, because of our own sin, put ourselves in a place of being at enmity with God. Our sin is grievous. We read through Genesis and we see the sins of these brothers spelled out and it's painful to look at. But folks, the sin in my heart and the sin in your heart is equally grievous. It makes us guilty before God. And so, when we look at that bread, we're reminded of the body of Christ, Jesus Himself, who came to this earth as one of us, lived obediently, but then gave His life to pay the penalty for the sins of all those who are in Christ. And we confess our sins, we grieve over our sins, and then we will take the bread and we will celebrate the fact that Jesus gave Himself to pay the penalty for those sins. And so we confess our sins and we mourn them, but we don't stay there. We give God glory for the forgiveness that we have because of what Christ did in giving Himself. And then as the cup comes, we will ponder the fact that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness Himself and, and, and by pouring out His blood, He instituted that new covenant that we get to be included in so that when God looks at us, not only is our sin taken away for us who are in Christ, but the righteousness of Christ is credited to us so that God looks at us and sees a righteous person standing there. That Jesus 
obeyed, and we get the credit. That Jesus paid the penalty, and we get the forgiveness. And that's that new covenant, and we give God thanks. And so, men, if you would take up the bread, please. Paul in the New Testament, reflecting on these very truths, says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, as we approach the Lord's table, we are grateful for this bread representing the body of Christ who gave Himself as a sacrifice for us. Father, we confess our sins and they are dark and they would make us eternally Your enemies were it not for what this bread represents, Jesus Himself paying the penalty for them that we by faith in Him have our sins forgiven. And so we confess our sin and we ask for your forgiveness and we rejoice that in Christ we have that forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you would take up the cup, please. Paul continues. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this new covenant in the blood of Christ that He obeys and we get the credit. That He suffered and died and we get the forgiveness. That we get to be called Your children. Having our sins done away with. Having new life in Christ. Having peace with You. In fact, having you as our Father because of this new covenant in the blood of Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Paul concludes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isn't it glorious to be forgiven in Christ? Amen. I'm going to uh, pray for us in just a moment, but I want to remind us about a benevolence. Uh, uh, this is our Sunday of the month where we take a benevolence offering. We have a couple of uh, particular, uh, particularly significant benevolence situations. I would encourage you to consider uh, giving towards. You can do that in the box in the back and, and, uh, or in the plate in the foyer, either one, but just designate it as benevolence. Um, we've got some, some things that uh, we'll need particular uh, extra finances, uh, most likely, and so we want to encourage you that direction. Also, uh, there will be a family up front who would love to pray with you at the end of the service, and uh, they, they consider that a great blessing, so don't, don't think you're putting a burden on them or anything like that. Uh, come and pray with them if you would like to. Let me close this in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we are so grateful for your grace and your mercy. We see evidence of uh, your grace and mercy in these sons of Jacob. We see evidence in the rest of the history of the Bible, particularly when we get to Jesus, our Savior. We read about him and we read about his obedience to you, that he, the righteous one, walked before you uprightly as no one ever had and yet went to the place of punishment for sin, doing so not for his own but to accomplish our redemption, taking upon himself the guilt for our sins, for all of us who will put our faith in him, dying in our stead and then being raised by you on the third day. And by his sacrificial death, we who have faith in Christ have our sins forgiven. And that same offer is made to all, that anyone who will look to Christ and trust in him and stop trusting in what they can accomplish on their own or by some other route, but look to Jesus, trust in Him, will find their sins forgiven as well. We'll find the righteousness of Christ applied to them as well. We'll find you as their Father instead of their judge. We are so grateful for Jesus, our Savior, and we are so grateful for this opportunity that we have to open your word and learn of Him. Father, we pray that as we go forth, you would bless us you would go with us and prepare our way, that you would help us to walk in a knowledge of you, that we would look to you as our Father, that we would look to Christ as our Savior moment by moment, that we would commune with the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. Bless us as we go, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.